We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello everyone and welcome to Archaeo Animals, the podcast all about zoo archaeology, uh, the relation between humans and animals in past civilizations. With you, as always, Simona Falanga and my co-host, Alex Fitzpatrick. And today, we thought we'd spice it up a little pun very much intended, as we'll be discussing <laughs> culinary zoo archaeology. So the zoo We're not even a, a minute in. Well, as per that previous episode, any complaints, just send an email over to Tristan, hashtag make it stop. But yeah, we'll be talking about uh, food and food preparation in the archaeological record. But I guess uh, the first and foremost, because the most important question here is, Alex, have you eaten? God, no, never. Absolutely not. This is going to be complete torture to me. I might die in the middle of this recording. Don't die in the middle of this recording. It'll be a load of paperwork. It would, but it would be very apt, I feel like. Yes. (laughs) It's kind of funny because talking about food is so inherent to the topic of zooarchaeology because, you know, zooarchaeology is the study of animals in human history for the most part. So a lot of the ways we use animals is through our consumption of food and resources and things like that. So in a way, we've kind of already covered this for the most part. (laughs) Largely, I'd say so. But I think it's good to have like a dedicated episode to kind of like draw all those like threads of conversation that we've had in previous episodes into like one thing. Yeah, because I think when you're discussing so the zoo archaeology of food, of course, you're looking at different processes which would have happened and indeed still happen in all societies. You have, of course, your animal products that are derived from the exploitation of domesticated species. You have your hunting, Mm -hmm. food preparation, and the traces that leaves in the archaeological record. You have your feasting, ritual or otherwise. And most importantly, well, not necessarily most importantly, but definitely most common, the rubbish that is left behind. It's our favorite thing. We're all trash pandas, as the saying goes. Well, for all intents and purposes, as archaeologists, we kind of are. Because I think for 99% of the archaeological record is just rummaging through the rubbish of dead people. Yeah, it makes sense too. When it comes to like deposits of things, you're most likely going to be getting the stuff that people kind of threw away into a hole or behind their house, or in some cases in Scotland, underneath their house. So yeah, that's kind of just it, isn't it? Yeah. If they were a little bit less tidy, maybe they would have just chucked it on the side and then erosional processes have, have brought them into your ditch. The, those beautiful erosion, erosional erosion processes. Yeah. My brain is just... Just your wind blowing sands, just water movements, and uh, you've got yourself a natural silting deposit. Baby, you've got a rubbish going. Exciting. That's an arrest development joke for <laughs> kind of. Um, That's also me. So we have these like five different ways to kind of tackle this really massive topic of zoo archaeology of food. As Spono said, we have animal products, hunting, food preparation, feasting, and rubbish. And we've kind of already covered animal products in our many, 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 many domestication episodes. Many. 
So many. We have a previous episode all about hunting for the people who are maybe just starting to listen to this podcast. Go ahead and listen to that. We have a whole episode on feasting as well. You know, ritual, our other favorite thing in this entire podcast, but just kind of as a, a brief summary. So when we talk about animal products, we're talking about, you know, milk from cattle, sheep and goats, wool from sheep, all that kind of stuff. But milk from camels as well and donkey. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I was just going for like the the, the big ones, the main. But I, I guess it depends on where in the world we, yeah. They are both True, of course. Cattle, sheep, goat. But of course, you know, stuff like milk and, and butter, because I think we've discussed before, I think, feasting episode, we have discussed uh, archaeological butter as well. Oh, yeah. Hog butter. We love to see it. Of course, unless it's a very specific sort of anaerobic deposit, you're very unlikely to get butter or milk, but you can get trace elements of that if you do residual analysis of pottery vessels. But then again, it's very... 50-50, depending on how well they've preserved. Oh, yeah, exactly. Another one that doesn't preserve, again, would be wool from sheep. Again, unless it's a, an aerobic deposit with, like, an absolute lack of air. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily going to get textiles. But, of course, they, they, they are a thing now, and they would have been a thing back then, whichever insert time period here. But yeah, so that's your animal products. Yeah, and then, of course, we have hunting, which, again, a lot of these things, I think, overlap as well. Because, obviously, with hunting, you get products like meat and other forms of subsistence but of course you differentiate because some of these animals are wild which we also have an episode about oh my gosh we are going to be running out of episode topics soon that's all right we can have like whole episodes of just tristan making puns nope <laughs> never can't we'll cancel the podcast uh, ready and uh, ready and waiting i'm here i'm here it's really called not. me no mm, <laughs> no please I, I still have yet to make a pun this episode so just just wait just wait i'll be uh cooking one up right now it'll just be like an hour of archaeology puns yes Anyway, we've also covered feasting. So let's kind of focus on the other parts. Uh, no puns allowed. If there's any puns, I will throw my laptop out my window. I will not abide to this heartless rule. I shall make puns if so inclined. So kind of for this episode, I wanted to like at least attempt to maybe not be so British-centric with our examples and things like that. So kind of to start off, I did want to mention that there are other methods of collecting uh, animals for food, scavenging off coastlines, things like that, which we do actually see here in Britain. But one that I actually saw while I was looking through the Archaeology of Food book, which is a massive book that is really interesting, the North American clam farms, which are managed and cultivated by the Northwest Coast First Peoples. That's cool, and also would be so interesting to find archaeologically that I'm super jealous of that. I want to see clam farms, you know? Yes, like, pardon my ignorance, is it literally a a clam farm? Yeah, like, they're they're like these very, from what I understand, they're like these set, like, deposits of just clams that are grown and then can be, you know, picked out and eaten. It's interesting because the area where I'm from, we also farm clams. Oh, really? Okay. I mean, I guess that makes sense. Because we have, uh, more particularly in my, well, in the closest town to where I'm from, I think they also, they cultivate, for lack of a better term, freshwater clams as well in an artificial lake that's there. So I think they just raised, they've got this big cages that of course will be made out of metal now, and they're sort of raised in there and then sort of harvested and sold at fish markets. Hmm. That's actually super interesting. And also, I love clams. Wow, I really wish I ate food before we started talking about this. It's also because it's something, just to make it <laughs> British-centric one more time, there's something clams, you can't find them very easily here. I found. Yeah, it's like, just... The closest thing is cockles. Yeah, it's weird, especially because, like, coming from, like, northeast the United States, like, you know, places like Boston are known for, like, clams and stuff, like clam chowder and stuff like that. So it's weird to be here. We have lots of scallops. Like, but that's not the scallops. Same. Or scallops, or however you say them. I think cockles, to be fair, like they're 
well, I'm, I'm not an expert on food, but to me, they taste almost identical. So I'm like, I wanted to make some pasta with clams and couldn't find them anywhere. So I thought, like, oh, cockles, they kind of look alike. Let's let's give that a go. And I couldn't tell the difference, to be honest. I've looked mm. them up and the species are nothing alike. They're just not related at all, aside from being both, you know, bivalve mollusks. But the taste is not really that different to think like, if anything, the main difference is while clams do tend to be sort of, well, again, cultivated, for lack of a better term, cockles do tend to be harvested in the wild. <laughs> I do I do like cockles. They used to, like where I grew up, they would actually have cockles, like, you know, uh, in the fish and chip shops, like, you know, beside the pickled eggs and the like the beetroot, you'd also have like cockles that you could like order alongside your fish and chips. So like I that's a really big memory for me. Yeah. And there's like fishmongers as well, like about maybe a hundred meters from the where the boats came in, and like they always had cockles in their like fresh cockles in their trays beside the fish. It was really nice. In the fish and chip shops, they weren't pickled, were they? Oh yeah, they were pickled. Yeah, yeah. Oh, or no, they had. They were. Oh no, I think maybe they were in some sort of fluid. I don't know if they were pickled. Well, because usually yeah, that's how you buy them fresh. They're sort of preserved, so they tend to be in like spring water or. Things that not okay. necessarily vinegar, although I guess you can pickle pretty much everything. It's just I personally despise vinegar. It's weird because I've got about 10 litres of vinegar in my house because I use it to make cleaning products, but I don't consume any of it. Sorry, I'm just thinking about uh, clam chowder stuff. So. <laughs> uh, I think that's going to become a recurring theme in the say, like, say, say it the way we all know clam chowder is meant to be said. Come on, please, Alex, do it. Clam chowder? Hey, 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 hey. Oh, there we go. I, um, I, I can, I can rest in peace. And here's me going. What is, uh, what is clam chowder? So you have two different types of clam chowder. You have the Boston clam or New England clam chowder, which is the white one, and then you have Manhattan clam chowder, which is like this red tomatoy one that's awful, and you only want the white one, which is the good one. Uh, it's mostly a New England thing. I love it. It's got like, it's got clams and it's got potatoes and I don't know what else, but it's clams. <laughs> I've never made it from scratch. That seems like a lot of work. Clams, potatoes and stuff. <laughs> yeah, I just buy it canned. No, so like, is it like a, a, a soupy type thing? Is... Yeah, it's, it's definitely more soupy. It depends on like who makes it. A lot of people put like bits of like croutons and stuff in it and crackers. So Ooh, soupy clams. Mm. Anyway, we should probably we should probably get back to talking about uh, zoo archaeological food. Although you know, I'm sure there's been some more historical sites in Massachusetts where you can find the the remains of glorious New England clam chowder. So, how does this lead us onto archaeological food preparation? I mean, it doesn't, <laughs> but it will now. So basically, um, this is a very obvious thing I'm about to say, but yeah, even in the, the deep, deep past, food had to, uh, you know, be prepared before being eaten for the most part. Unless you like your meat raw. Yeah, which, you know, no judgment. I love uh, like a, a, you know, a, a nice pink steak, to be honest. Whom among us doesn't? One of the big questions is how do we determine when the animal remains we're looking at have been cooked? Because obviously, even if you're looking at the remains of food preparation, you're still only looking at bone. So I think the most obvious one is burning. So thankfully to amazing archaeology, experimental archaeology nerds out there who are the real heroes, truly because they know how to do stuff uh, practically and I don't. They've shown us that burnt bone changes in color and in texture based on the temperature and intensity of fire. So you, colors can go from brown to more black and then into like a blue, gray, white when it's calcinated, which means that it's hit extremely high temperatures of over a thousand... It's about that. I think like it's some some number over sort of a thousand degrees Celsius. So usually, if you find sort of a calcined remains that are like very very white or sort of slightly cracked, it, it tends to be associated more with cremated remains, 
which is not necessarily mm-hmm. what you're going to find in a cooking setting. If you're having a barbecue, no one's going to have a fire that reaches that higher temperature. Not with that attitude. I mean, you could, but it'll just be pointless. And I'd, I'd, I think that might spoil the meat. Not with that attitude. <laughs> I mean, between my guest, uh, we'll do an, an Archaeo Animals Experimental Archaeology Project. I'll have me like, an, a nice barbecue at a steady low temperature, and you can go set yours ablaze with a thousand degrees. See how it goes. Giant, giant barbecue pyre. <laughs> Heck yeah. <laughs> They'll, they'll see a thousand years down the line and think it was a ritual, like it says, the sacrifice of the god of fire. No, it was a ritual for being it was super awesome. Yeah, so like a, a celebration of self by setting things on yeah. fire. Okay. <laughs> well, um, it's not just cremations. I mean, cremations are probably the most common form of calcinated bone, but I, I, <laughs> I literally just finished writing off part of a chapter about calcinated bone in my own work. And a lot of times you'll find it in hearths because they've been, you know, pushed off of tables or things like that. They're just scraps. So you kind of just throw them in the hearth and then they become calcinated. And I guess technically cremated at that point. Yeah, but I guess you wouldn't be sort of directly, you know, a, a byproduct of food production per se. It'll be either sort of bits of bone that fell into the hearth, either from the cooking area or somewhere else, and then just more fires were had over and over again until that bone was burnt upon beyond recognition sort of thing. Yeah, true. But I just figured it's like a, another thing to kind of point out. You can't, so that we, you know, we, if we find calcinated bone, we can't immediately just be like, that's cremation. It could be loads of other things. Oh, no, no, and no, I think... Yeah. And I think that burning is a really weird nebulous kind of thing because... Again, depending on the intensity of the fire, the temperature of fire, if the fire is directly on the bone or if it's like indirectly, uh, you get all these kind of differences in the like physical characteristics. So like the differences in heat exposure can be seen in uh, different elements. So let's say a meat joint's being roasted, the epiphysis showing the bone will be more affected than the diaphysis or like, you know, the, the part that's basically covered with meat. Uh, so you'll see more of that, like, that scorching on that bone yeah, that's sticking you, out. You might see, you know, like one of the ends of the femurs being completely charred, but then sort of the epiphysis of the part in the middle and end, say, of the other epiphysis looking burnt but not mm-hmm. as burnt because of course you know the the one epiphysis where the, i guess the joint had been dislocated would have been exposed to the heat to intense heat while yeah the meat around it would have shielded the bone underneath somewhat yeah and like you know like i said it also not all bone is going to be or not all meat sorry is going to be applied directly to the heat source because there's so many ways to cook you can use dry heat which means you're roasting or frying or grilling or moist heat which is boiling steaming stewing and that's going to have different effects on the bone or not necessarily show at all and then you have charring which is a combination of the two which is barbecue baby (laughs) oh i can go for barbecue now well, how about we take a quick break and you can have a very, very mini barbecue. Yay. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code animals waiting on a tax return hopefully it ends up in your hands fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30 percent in 2023 if you're in a bind this tax season lifelock can help our u.s-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. And we are back with Archaeo Animals. Today we are talking about the zooarchaeology of food. I'm slowly but surely starving to death during this podcast, but it's fine. And I guess we're going to talk a bit more about food prep because that's kind of a lot of what the zooarchaeology of food is in a way. Almost the near entirety of it. Because when you think about it, most of the animal remains that we get are associated with food preparation. Of course, you do get your ritual, which we've discussed before. We get sort of full animal burials. But then really, I think the majority of it does tend to be food consumption related. Like comparatively, sort of uh, ritual depositions are quite rare overall. Yeah. So I guess the other obvious one after signs of cooking will be signs of butchery. Which, of course, you know, we've discussed before, as you've mentioned before, in the episode on feasting and again on the episode of on hunting, I believe. But it'll be good to have a little recap again. Because in butchery, like some of the signs you may find on bone are cut and chop marks, which are very, a pretty good indicator that some sort of modification for consumption has occurred. Or not, not necessarily, could be for bone working purposes as well, but that's another kettle of fish. But more often than not, if you do get chop marks, it has been to portion off the meat. It could either be sort of a primary butchery kind of chop, sort of to remove the parts that you don't necessarily eat. It could be some further chop marks to sort of portion the carcass sort of in more biteable, bite-sized chunk, if uh, you will pardon the pun once more. Uh, Is that really a pun? Biteable, bite-sized? Bite-sized chunks. Because it'll be small. I'll give it. I'll give it a six. I'll give it a six on the pun scale. Just like as, as you know, an authority on puns. I think. Yeah. No bite sizes. Like it's a. It's a decent pun. You say that like it's something to be proud of. <laughs> well, you know, you know what? Like I have to. I have to grasp onto things that like are accolades. You know. I have to to just like you know sink my teeth into something and just never let go. I'm just like tearing into it, like a big chunk of meat. Pun master general. Hey, you said it, not me. Yes, <laughs> you'd have uh, your chop marks sort of for portioning. Then you can also find some smaller cut marks for skinning and filleting. Because the difference between the two being in a way sort of self-explanatory, if you find a femur that's literally got a chop through the middle of it, that's a chop <laughs> mark. <laughs> or sometimes you can find some little thin marks over the surface of the bone especially sort of if a v-shaped as if made with a knife that it would have been more than likely a sign that joint of meat had been sort of skinned or filleted not to be confused with some sort of more like uneven sort of like zigzag no actually no what would saw marks look like i'm, I'm being temporarily blank i don't know i'm trying to think because that's it, not necessarily something that i see ever working in like the prehistory so this would be more sort of vertical sided with a bit of a blunt point yeah of course depending on like you know the kind of saw that you're using because obviously you have your if you're working in more historical archaeology you have the more modern saws where you have like that nice clean cut that you would find if you buy meat from you know the grocery store and stuff like that but if you're talking more about the older kind of saws that you'd have to actually like go back and forth with yeah i don't know well bss cleaner a, a cut yeah but i assume before. there'd be like parallel striations kind of yeah, because this will be interesting as well, sort of in uh, sort of archaeological butchery as opposed to modern or anyways, uh, anywhere where traditional tools are used. Is that mm. you, sometimes you might find multiple attempts at sawing or chopping off, particularly, and be like, oh, okay, now this isn't working out. I'll try like an inch to the right <laughs> and then just keep going. No, that's it. me. That's me in the archaeological record is someone who's just like, well, mm, okay, I can't do it. I'm going to try it again. Yeah, because an inch that way just makes all the difference, guys. It's an archaeology of failures, which is my <laughs> upcoming book that I, I've just decided to write. 
Excellent. So, well, she can give your food preparation, your cooking, whichever method you've chosen to implement. And then, of course, after you've had uh, your fill of your dinner, you get back to our point five, or it's called the, the archaeological sort of culinary rubbish. But how do you determine sort of what has been used for eating and what has been thrown away? Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely like a really important part to like parse out because basically everything we talked about that you would find in food prep, you could also find in the rubbish, except for fish bones. Those are always trash, regardless of what it's being used at. I don't care. Stop dissing the fish. Do you want the fish people to come to your house, outside your house again, like like months ago? Yes, because I'm hungry. <laughs> also, like they're good enough for you to eat, but not yeah. for you to talk about. Unbelievable. It's that saying that I read in zooarchaeology papers all the time where it's good enough to eat, good enough to think, or something. I butchered that. <laughs> ha. 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 Oh, I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> no, <laughs> this podcast is ruining me. Speaking of culinary rubbish, of course, you get two different types. Of course, you have the stuff that you've eaten. And there's your leftovers, say what's been left of your pork ribs. And, you know, you eat all the meat around it and then you go ahead and chuck away the ribs. And there's also the stuff that you never intended to eat in the first place. Because the difference between the two is that normally, because the ones that you've eaten will show some kind of cooking to it. So like see mm-hmm. part one, <laughs> while the ones that you were never intending to eat more often than not have not undergone any cooking more often than not. So, of course, if you're having a hog roast, or you tend to sort of roast the entire pig, then, of course, you'd have signs of burning on the skull as well, but chances are you're not going to eat the head. So that still gets tossed, but it's not actually being consumed. Yeah, I mean, I hate to bring up fish again, but I will, and I, I do hate to bring it up again. But the one kind of example I always think of is, you know, you usually remove the, the head of a fish prior to cooking, although that's not always the case. There's places, specifically places in like the Iron Age British Isles, where you, if you have some of the smaller fish, you could just eat them whole. So, you know. To feel like I know of people that do eat the heads, like they eat the eyes as well. Yeah, uh, yeah, you do you. I've I've probably eaten fish eyes before, but just, I mean, I guess that's also an interesting point of like what we determine might've been food, the stuff that wouldn't have been eaten because I think there's also a lot of modern day bias of like, oh yeah, we, you know, we normally wouldn't eat so-and-so, so so they probably didn't eat it. Absolutely. Because I mean, something that in our particular society is seen as something that you wouldn't eat in another society that might be a delicatess exactly yeah it goes goes across geographical areas it goes across backgrounds and time periods so of course like there's one method that i think we discussed before i think in the hunting episode about how prime a cut is so normally especially like in hunter-gatherer societies so in the paleolithic say for instance Mm -hmm. they would have chosen certain parts to carry back to the site over others because they bore more meat content but then again that in itself is not a strategy you can rely on a hundred percent because they might have also gone for a part that isn't a heavily meat bearing joint but that they would have considered particularly tasty yeah no exactly and the archaeology of taste will be something incredibly subjective to go look into There's also kind of the uh, the broader context you have to think of as well. Like as a kind of a personal example, I was working on an assemblage where we had, you know, so many marrow cracking occurring uh, that I was like, oh, it must be, you know, I must have done something wrong. Like this must be a misidentification because I was finding it on like bird bones and things like that. And then I realized, you know, depending on the situation, if people are starved for nutrients they're looking for supplements to food resources that may be almost depleted because of famine or just you know something like that you're gonna go for just every bit that you can eat including the marrow from animals that you wouldn't necessarily be extracting marrow from so there's definitely a lot of different biases at play so i guess in a lot of ways looking even though the archaeology or the zooarchaeology of food is a big portion of the field it's also pretty tricky because of all these different things happening at once 
I think that's a running theme for archaeology per se, because I think one of the hardest jobs that we have to do is to remove that bias. Because mm-hmm. all the, sort of the quantification thing, that's all nice and good. That's something that you get with practice. But removing the bias is a- as crucial as it is difficult at times. Yeah, I mean, there's been times where I've like in my head have been have mentally separated assemblages by like, oh, this is like, you know, definitely stuff that they hunted or whatever. And these are just like random bits that are natural deposits. And of course, you're like, hang on. Even though we would just say, oh, you know, this site's on a beach, so there's going to be seagulls everywhere. We don't necessarily know if they weren't trying to catch any seagulls because that's been evident in prehistory. So it's just a lot of stuff that you kind of have to, like, get your mind over and kind of end up thinking of every single possibility. And then your brain hurts. And that's how I feel all the time now. (laughs) UK. Yes, we've had a moment of of meditation on the the statement. (laughs) Wait, do I have to get the incense out and like the reeky music and like what's happening here? Well, we're just thinking about how uh, we're having a galaxy brain moment, I think. Thinking about all the things you have to think about when you do zoo archaeology. And it was a zoo archaeology mindfulness. Like, think about this tibia. Think about the shape of the astragalus. We love to that see is, it. That is a very beautiful shape. There's something, <laughs> it is. something great beep, beep. to meditate on. <laughs> beep, beep. Do, 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 beep, beep. That, like, it's like a car. Beep, yeah, beep. Yeah, it's a little car. And I, I, I really want to get a tattoo of one, but I don't, I think no one will ever recognize what it is and I'll just look weird. And? Yeah, that's fair. I guess that's completely fair. But like, I, yeah, it's like I always wanted to get like a, a bird to your tarsus, but I also think like no one would understand what that is and it would look weird. So I, I only have like mandibles and yeah, fevers. But you've got a botanical reference collection. I might expand more onto the zoo archaeology realm. That is true. I, I like that I find a plant naturally occurring in my garden. I don't know what it is. And you come to the rescue by looking at your <laughs> To be fair, I was, I was wrong though. <laughs> But it was close enough. That's true. Yeah, it's kind of a shame that I got all these tattoos and then didn't think of maybe theming it to uh, all zoo archaeology stuff. I'm not very good at planning things out, folks. <laughs> That's all right. I'm sure you've got parts left that can get more tattoos. So I do. I do not have monies left to get more tattoos. So truly the, the greatest uh, struggle of my life but yeah actually i just because we were just talking about tattoos and i have different mandibles tattooed on me just made me think of the other thing that about the zooarchaeology of food that I, I only just realized now is you can actually you know also see consumed food after it has passed through the body <laughs> yes delightful yes i think i think we have discussed it before it's not something i've encountered personally but it's it's been interesting reading about it the pictures a bit less so no i mean to be fair i've also had a slightly less messy version of that where smaller bones like fish vertebrae when they get passed through a person or a, a animal usually basically as it goes through the digestive tract it gets compressed and like l- erosion happens on the, the outside of the bone so if you come across say fish vertebrae that look like that there's a good chance that it probably just went through the digestive system so there you go well that's a new take on, on uh, rummaging through uh, dead people's rubbish there you go. Also, I was going to say gnaw marks as well, I, which we don't necessarily get human gnaw marks. I feel like as much as you get non-human species, because non-human species usually are like gnawing at bone, that's also something that you can kind of look at because there's also, you know, you throw like a bit of meat to the dog or something like that, which is still, you can see it in the archaeological record sometimes as well. Yeah, no, you do. You do see it. It's interesting to see whether it's something that has been cooked and eaten and then tossed to animals or scavengers or whether it was parts that were given to the animal from the get-go as raw joints maybe something you weren't planning on consuming just give it to the dog yeah i guess it depends you'd have to look and see you know is there a bit of burning on it is this a meat that was like over the fire again it's complicated If you're curious to see what gnaw marks, say, from a dog would look like on an animal bone, you can readily buy sort of like bones for dogs, give one to your dog and then see what shapes it makes. <laughs> so you've got yourself some, some experimental archaeology going. Although, please, please, 
please not cooked bone. Do not give your dog cooked bone. No. That said, if you let your dog go at some bone or, you know, if you have a, a cat, cats no, are known to also chew on bone occasionally, send us pictures because it's nice to have a reference. Uh, well, my cat can't chew on anything. She's got no teeth. N- not that she would have had time to chew on things anyway. She's just too busy with her snoozes and dozes and naps. So That's a big mood. And I think we'll take a break and then I will take a mini nap during this break in honor of your cat. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. And we are back and we are talking about the zooarchaeology of food today on Archaeo Animals. And we're up to everyone's favorite part of the show, the case studies or case study. It's just one today. Mostly because I forgot to write more. <laughs> because Alex is really, really hungry. So I'm really, really hungry. Case study for now. Yeah, I, I think we can live. And to be honest, actually, it was kind of hard to find a, a project that was specifically about looking at cuisine. Because like we were saying, regardless of what archaeological site you work on, for the most part, you're probably going to end up running into remains from consumption because newsflash everyone eats and everyone's had to eat since the beginning of time i don't eat i've never eaten once in my life except for simona simona uh, goes outside lets the sun hit her and she's fine well it's because i've never had chili con carne so i've truly i've never truly eaten oh i wish i had chili right now Ugh, this is cruel. Anyway, there. I mean, there's definitely been some studies uh, looking at subsistence over time, uh, exploitation of certain species. But that also kind of felt more like domestication and things like that. So I decided to stick with the uh, U.S. of A. And we're going to talk about Montpellier cuisine. Have a, a solid minute of all of us pronouncing Montpellier. 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 Simona? Montpellier cuisine. Yay! Okay, <laughs> Simona it. gets the crime. Montpellier cuisine. For people who are not from the US, and to be honest, probably a lot of people in the US, because who, who can learn all that history, honestly? Montpellier is the name of the property that James Madison, who was a president, one of the ones we all forget because, you know, there's a lot of them. It's the, that's the property in which he lived in. And there's been uh, years and years of uh, archaeological excavation going on at the property. One of the cool things about it is that you can kind of, through the zooarchaeological uh, assemblages there, you can actually see the way U.S. cuisine changes over time. Specifically kind of like what were the lux- luxury foods and what were like the specific foods that are related to status, because obviously as James Madison, he's probably as high of status as you can get in the United States. Please do not ask me like what number president he was or when he was president, because I don't know that stuff. I don't know either. But I'm, I'm glad you cleared it up with Montpellier being the name of the property, because I was just there being puzzled as to why sort of a study uh, on the US had the name of the capital of Quebec. I didn't even know it was the capital of Quebec. Huh. Well, yeah, there was this, uh, so kind of, this is like the early, like the, the late 1700s, uh, early 1800s. There was a really 
big, from what I understand, there was a, a, a big influence of French culture on like, specifically the higher status people uh, of the so, Sorry, States. I said something incredibly stupid. It's not the capital of Quebec. It's a city oh. in France. It's a city in France. Yeah, uh, same uh, thing. Inland in France. <laughs> you got France I'm, and then you have Northern France. Which I'm not is... sure, just because in my head, because I thought like, uh, okay, like it's a, it's a North American case study. Montpellier, be like, oh, like uh, Quebec. No, not Quebec. <laughs> no, my, my I, I, I'll take a penalty box later or something. Yeah, no, I mean, I 100% believed you, so I'm not any much better. It was a test, and you've passed. No, actually, no, you're not passing. No, I, I didn't pass. <laughs> Is this a test? <laughs> Only one way to find out. See, we all thought that I'd be the one who cracked during this episode because of hunger. But it's you, apparently, who is trying to wrap their mind around the French uh, connection here. Because yeah, it's, it's Montréal, no Montpellier, Montréal. Uh... My apologies to, to all residents of Quebec. Just... Yeah, but what great shame you've brought upon them. Right, first it was fish, now it's people in Quebec. Who are we? Else are we going to insult here? We didn't. I mean, Simona insulted the the, the great people of Quebec. It, we still haven't like got over the fish thing. Okay, like that's still still a thing. Fish people come at me. And birds. And birds. There's a lot. Yeah. You hate a lot of things. <laughs> I mean, I'm a New Yorker. We're born to hate. Right, but, uh, but back to the Montpellier cuisine, Mont which, is, <laughs> which is definitely not in Quebec. <laughs> no, it is in the US. Like I said, there is a, a big kind of uh, French influence on the, the upper crust of America. I don't know this as like hard research, but I assume it, it's probably due to the fact that, you know, we had the, the, the great French like help in the Revolutionary War, and there were so many connections between France and America at that time, specifically with the quote-unquote founding fathers, like James Madison. So it makes sense, I guess. Yeah, so I think, of course, given the particular background uh, that has been looked into in this case study, as you've mentioned, most of what we got from the zooarchaeological analysis is really sort of uh, some very sort of luxury and high-status food. So these would by no means sort of reflect to the entire population, but only sort of, well, the 1%. Yeah, which is like kind of what a lot of archaeology ends up being, isn't it? Especially early archaeology, because all those rich people who were going to Egypt were looking at uh, the average person's grave, were they? They were looking at the uh, big old tombs. Yes, there is a tend to have that. I don't think you have that so much here, per se. because No. Does because it's a very sort of development-led, there is research as well, but it's also a very development-led archaeological sector. You do tend to look at everything, regardless yeah. of status, geographical area. You just uh, you just go in there and, and dig up some bones. <laughs> and I mean, it's you we're also seeing this kind of thing in America too, given that uh, we're talking about a ex-president's property, which has gotten a lot of excavation done. And I, I think a lot of the big projects in the United States, uh, at least archaeologically, are those kind of estates. Like I know uh, Thomas Jefferson's uh, property, which uh, I'm quickly looking up the name because I'm pretty sure it's another French one. Monticello, that's what it is. Th that also has a pretty big excavation going on. Yeah, there's something I personally don't know an awful lot on, which I guess is all the more interesting that we're, we're covering right now. Yeah, no, definitely. So you basically, like Simona was saying, you have mostly these kind of elite foods that showcase status and wealth. And some of these foods were more exotic kind of meats from animals that were difficult to obtain. This is this specific uh, project that we're talking about uh, was specifically looking at these kind of elite foods. Apparently at Montpellier, there's these kind of two main periods of time. So you have the honeymoon years, which is 1797 to 1801, and then the retirement years, which is 1818 to 1836. And those are the years after he was president. I don't know, like, 
how it works in other countries, but like, I mean, I assume it's the same because of, you know, capitalism and stuff, you know, presidents kind of just live good for the rest of their lives, even after their term is up. The honeymoon years had uh, a really diverse zooarchaeological record. It included both domestic and wild uh, animals. So the kind of like wild game was most likely the big luxury food. But domestic livestock was mostly consumed. Uh, apparently, pig and pork was really big on, in Montpellier. So you have calcine bone, like we were talking about before. These are the, the bone that's exposed to really high heat. In this place, they're actually been interpreted as scraps uh, that fell off and into the hearth. So those are the kind of like trends that were mainly in the honeymoon years. And then in the retirement years, you actually see more consumption of pig, specifically young pig, and uh, also veal. So, you know, juvenile cattle remains. I, I, must, I must interrupt a young pig with my usual reference. How very Roman of them. Go, go, you know what? Do you, go ahead if you want to talk a little bit more about young pig. Uh, in Roman times. It's it, it, it just a suckling pig, so a very, very juvenile pig was a delicacy in the Roman period. There you so, go. There you go. How Roman of them. Yeah, I was going to say, we, we hadn't had a Simona's Roman moment yet. So. I know, right? Yeah, we almost went through a whole episode not talking about the Romans, I think. But then we're going to lose out on those cups of coffee. But one, one question I did have, though, about so the... Um, because you're saying in the honeymoon years, uh, you tend to have sort of like the more luxury foods being wild game. Now, how luxury was it? As in, was it just wild game that is native to the US or were they bringing in, say, giraffe meat? It wasn't that wild from what I remember. It was basically kind of the wild game that you, I think, was, was mostly native to the States. But it wasn't necessarily something your average Joe was eating, you know? Yeah, just because you think if you have like a huge disposable income, uh, so like you having this sort of very elite food, like it wouldn't be outside the realms of possibility to just get different meats from all over the world brought in because you can. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that's a thing now. Yeah, I don't think there was necessarily anything that out there. Like I was saying before too, uh, there was such a big influence of French culture that that seeped into culinary uh, as well. So a lot of the foods they ate were kind of based on the the same foods that were being eaten in France at the time. And then the, the really interesting thing I think is the differences in butchery. So specifically in the retirement years, find way more butchery marks. So the interpretation is actually that they were probably breaking down uh, meat a bit more to make specifically for stews and soups and things like that, which is something I literally have never thought about in interpretation. So that says a lot about me. It's it's interesting in a way as well, because again, we are talking about like uh, the zooarchaeological record of well, the upper class. Mm-hmm. So if you have an, an elite diet, uh, stews and soup is not something you'd associate with that. Cause normally you'd make a stew and, uh, and soups to get literally the most out of your meat or say meat that sort of passed its time a little bit. So you just boil it for longer. So it's still okay to eat. So in a way, it's interesting to see it in this particular context. Yeah, I guess at that point, you're kind of thinking less about, you know, how are they getting the most out of, you know, the most bang for their buck. And because these are like elite people who have access to all these kind of resources, it it seems like it's more of a stylistic thing. Like that was a bit more in vogue in terms of like what foods you were eating, which is like really interesting to kind of think about as well, you know, how that has influence on the material culture you end up with, how things. Because I, I don't know sort of when James Madison died, but could there have been say a parallel sort of between eating more stewy and soupy foods with old age where perhaps you can't chew things as well? I actually don't know when he died, but I'm going to look it up real quick. 1836. So yeah, the retirement years ends with him dying. Yeah, that, that actually makes a lot of sense thinking about it in that context. I actually have a question. So I'm just thinking, like, you know, from the stews, could you figure out 
how many boards were used in like a stew you know like you can do the minimum number of individuals on like a site i mean w- would you say like one of these stews had like what like three to five like feral hogs or something like that not sure you could quite do that with a stew because like you don't necessarily tend to stew meat with the bone on or at least not the stews i've had personally so i guess like you could do an mni like a minimum number of individuals if you get the bones out of it but say like in the odd eventuality where you've made a stew that's so solely of wild boar femurs if that makes sense yeah i mean would these feral hogs be like running around in the yard or would they be hunting them the, 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 that's I, I do you wait do you get the joke i think i do okay <laughs> I'm really trying here. Come on. Well, to be it's fair, been... I was I was gonna say Simondo's not on Twitter anymore, really. So you, Alex. Actually, I, I I didn't I didn't get the groan or the disappointment that I was wanting. You don't deserve it. But yeah, that's about it for uh, the archaeology of food or zero archaeology of food. I keep saying archaeology of food, and that's the name of a book. But yeah, no, uh, as always, subscribe to our podcast, get your friends to subscribe, rate and review us. Nice things, please. We're on Twitter at ArcheoAnimals. I don't know what else to say. Uh, I'm, I'm slowly but surely fading away from lack of food. Uh, <laughs> best get some food in you then. Yeah. See you guys. Don't have that pasta. Thank you for listening to Archeo Animals. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. You can find us on Twitter at Archeo Animals. Also, the views expressed on the podcast are those of ourselves, the hosts and guests, and do not necessarily represent those of our institution, employers, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.